I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Welcome to a special Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am your host, Isaiah Henkel. I'm very excited for today. This podcast is being released on a special day for Cheeky Scientists. It's our first ever job search jumpstart event where you can get access to our entire portfolio of 17 advanced programs for one price, 90% off the aggregate price. It's an incredible deal. You can go to our website at CheekyScientist.com. If you are listening to this radio show, this podcast, on the day it releases, Monday, January 18th, it's a one-day-only event, so make sure you go to CheekyScientist.com now. I'm very excited for today's show because we are going to be talking about a variety of topics. We're going to start with culture, talk about how you need to understand culture and how you need to position yourself to fit in a company's culture, not just for the company and to get hired, but for yourself. There's nothing worse than being on a team that is not a good fit uh, for both the company and for yourself. Organizational culture. We're going to discuss this. We have a great article that was recently released. We're going to walk through it. We're going to talk a lot about culture as well as project management. We're seeing a lot more hybrid project management since the pandemic. Workforce decentralization has caused this. Perhaps a company was using Scrum or Six Sigma, or maybe they were using a traditional waterfall method. And now they're combining methodologies. They're using new software. Everyone's on Slack now, for example. Everyone's on Zoom or something similar. What does this mean for project management? What do you need to know for your own company if you're working in industry now? What do you need to know to get hired into your first or next industry job? We have a lot to discuss. I remember in graduate school, really feeling good about myself that I was an incredible project manager. Towards the end, I thought, man, I can balance so many different incubations. I'm so good at project management. I document in my lab notebook every day. And then I got into industry and I realized in academia, there is no project management. Uh, there's just a, a lot of individuals doing things on their own and checking in once a week, maybe. Now, maybe you were an outlier and uh, you had a pretty strict project management process, but likely not. In industry, a small company, a lot of PhDs don't know this, maybe you are a grad student or a postdoc, maybe you haven't worked in industry, you see small as in you know, that lab, your lab of five people, or the lab down the hall of five people, or the classroom with five to 10, 11 people. In industry, small is, can be 100 to 1,000 employees. That can be considered small on the entire spectrum of, of sizes. So how do you get things done with hundreds of other employees, let alone mid-sized large companies? Some of these companies have billions in revenue, more than a small company, a small country, hundreds of thousands of employees all around the world and uh, different subsidiaries, sister companies. How, how do you manage that? You have to manage culture and project management. And that's what we're going to talk a lot about today. So let's jump into our lead story on company culture. There was a great article came out, that came out called Why It's Important for New Hires to Fit in a Company's Culture by Andrew Martins. And it, and it talks a lot about organi organizational culture. What is culture fit? This is something as PhDs we don't think a lot about. We're, we want to know the, the strategy, the goal, the objective. And then we'll just figure out a way to hit it through data, usually qualitative or quantitative, through information. Uh, but culture is how you get things done. The corporate strategy is the what, the objectives, the what culture is the how. So why is that so important? Because how you get things done on a day-to-day -day basis, whether you're working remotely or with the team in person, it dictates how you feel, how others feel. Maybe you're more of a logical person. You're not too worried about feelings, but other people are, and you can become isolated or siloed. You can get squeezed out of an organization very easily if you don't make an effort to fit into that culture. does not matter how competent you are. This goes back to the age-old argument of what ratio of likability and capability do you need to be successful in industry? Now, maybe you're highly capable, and so you can be not quite as likable 
and I'm simplifying culture here, but it really comes down to those two things. Uh, maybe you're highly likable and you can sacrifice a little bit on the capability. Every company is going to have their own ratio of those two things. And that's just a simplified uh, version of it. You can add up to hundreds of other characteristics that can make up a culture. So you'll hear a lot of, uh, you know, buzzwords like culture IQ. You'll hear a lot of, uh, you know, EQ, uh, company's personality. You know, you'll hear people talk about different generations, right? Cultures for, of the baby boomers versus millennials, Gen X, whatever the generations are after that now. Uh, what you need to know is that every company has a culture and you should dig into understanding it. You can start with what's available online, the, the public culture, the values, the mission statement. But then you have to talk to individuals working at that company. You have to understand that culture and draw conclusions if you go on a site visit or if you have an interview by video. They say there's a great work-life balance at the company, but you go in for an interview, nobody has any pictures of their family in their offices. You need to dig into this because you want to make sure that you enjoy working there, right? And, so, and you might think, okay, well, I'm the kind of person where work is work. I don't need to enjoy it. I just need to get paid and have an impact. Fine. You'll have more of an impact if you're in the right culture. And the, the more immediate concern here is that you're going to be tested on culture. Do you understand it? Can you answer questions related to culture? Because human resource uh, individuals, professionals, hiring managers, recruiters, they care a lot about this. They're going to conference after conference with everybody talking about culture all day long. This trend will continue. How do you create culture in a remote environment? That's an interview question that a PhD was asked recently, came up in one of our private groups. How do you give an answer to that? What if they ask you, if, so, if you had to write a newspaper article on our company about our company's culture, what would you write? That is a tough interview question that gets asked all the time. So evaluating cultural fit. If you understand what the employer wants to do in terms of culture, what they care about, you'll have an easier time with this. So employers, they, their, their gold standard for whether or not a, a job candidate's a good fit in the culture is if that job candidate's hired and they stay for more than two years. That's the gold standard, two-year retention. And so how do they uh, help uh, ensure that they're hiring people that are going to stay for two or more years? Well, they have an onboarding process, right? Well, they have like a well, orientation first, then you onboard. And then there's a process of acculturation where you get embedded into the culture. It's all of the unspoken rules uh, at a company. Uh, so I, I like this article, article because if you can understand what employers are being told about culture, what they're learning, uh, how they're discussing it, what, what the language of culture is, you're going to be a more successful job candidate. You're going to be a, a better leader. When they interview you, view you, they're going to say, okay, this person could have some subordinates underneath them. They can manage. Let's give them that senior scientist or senior engineer position or that per, uh, principal scientist or, or whatever your background is. Let's give them that higher level, higher management position. So hiring a successful job candidate from an employer's per, per, uh, point of view relies heavily on culture. Now, this, this article concludes with what we talked about earlier in terms of it's one factor, culture fit likability. If you come in and you fit in the culture perfectly, but you can't do the job, guess what? Doesn't matter. You're not going to get hired. You have to perform. So capability, cultural fit. Think about those two things. Are you managing both? As a PhD, you've been trained only to think about capability which is why so many PhDs go to their first interviews just talking about their technical skills with hiring managers, recruiters who don't have PhDs, don't understand those technical skills. In some cases, the technical skills are outdated because the company has advanced robotics, right? Doing their precious technical skills that they're doing with their own hands. So capability is important, but it's not the only thing. Uh, you have to consider capability and cultural fit. Dig into some of these buzzwords and concepts like cultural IQ. Uh, dig, dig into the, uh, the language of culture uh, so you can start understanding what employers are looking for. And really, the language of culture is going to be very dependent on the individual company. They're going to have their own culture. And if you think of the paradigm of culture, 
which we talk a lot about at Cheeky Scientist. It goes beyond what you wear to a position or if you have to show up at a certain time. It's all the processes, how things get done. Think in terms of systems. What software programs do they use? That's culture. How do they interact with each other? That's culture. Uh, what are the symbols, the branding? That's culture. Uh, do, where do you, how long do people take lunch for? Uh, do you have to stay online and, and how responsive do you have to be by email? I'm sure you've heard from your friends perhaps that you've made in graduate school or beyond that they have to be much more responsive or maybe much less responsive to their advisors or to their PI than you do. Maybe you've gone into a different classroom, a different lab, and things felt different or the systems of that lab or classroom were different. That's a result of different cultures. Every company's culture is different too. And that's something you need to uh, keep in mind. Okay, let's talk about project management. There's a few trends that are taking place. I was reading an article called Five Project Management Trends Taking Control in 2021 that our uh, research team found. It's by Allison Fergus. Uh, and it has a, a few predictions. And these predictions align a lot with what we've been teaching over this past year the first one is the, the, the reliance on hybrid project management. Companies have had to adapt. Many of them have hired consulting firms to help them adapt, right? We went from everything being normal, pandemic hit now, workforce decentralization, lockdowns. How do we start hiring virtually? How do we make sure that we can pivot and work in an office, but also work at home whenever we need to? How do we have jobs that typically require a lot of travel like clinical research associates or medical science liaisons, but still leverage these people and still have meetings with clinicians or clinical trial sites, even if we can't be there in person, requires a hybrid approach. Uh, so a hybrid approach, one of, the, one of the most common traditional taught hybrid project management approaches is uh, the combination of the waterfall project management methodology and the agile project management methodology. Now, Agile Project Management, as we teach in our advanced program, the Project Management Consortium, it's almost like a religion. People could have, you know, week-long conferences to learn about Agile. And there's different types of Agile, like Scrum, uh, that, that a lot of tech companies use. But some large organizations, right, once you become too big, you typically, typically move to more of the traditional waterfall methodology where there's a project, it's outlined, and it moves down this... Uh, Waterfall, you can't go up the waterfall. Uh, very often though, this causes problems because uh, you can't get a result until it's too late to do anything about a negative result. This is the project management methodology we use most often in academia. We plan, we discuss, we map out an experiment or a course of study with whatever, you know, whatever your background is in, a course of study, a thesis project, and you start collecting data, information, and it can be weeks, months later until you get enough information data, in some cases years. I know it was for me in graduate school where you're like, I think I'm on the wrong path. <laughs> this isn't going on anywhere. It's not something that you figure out in days or weeks. But if you're using an agile project management methodology, something like Scrum at a tech company, you're doing very specific sprints that are a week long. You're getting feedback. You're it's very organized with the uh, sprint reviews and uh, highly structured, highly structured uh, documentation and, and discussion process, it moves very quickly. Now, what we're seeing is a lot of companies are doing what's called uh, agile fall, right? So waterfall plus agile. If a company gets too big, they can still divide up their different departments. And those departments can do something similar to agile, but overall in the company, right, or maybe combined uh, with a couple of different departments or at, overall in the department, it's more of a waterfall method. There's a lot of different ways to approach this. So you can have an overall overarching corporate strategy that could take a year, as in there's one big project that could take a year. That's part of the corporate strategy. Uh, but every different department or maybe smaller groups within the department are leveraging different types of project uh, management methodologies or uh, just things that they're, they're making proprietary to themselves, to that one company. This can involve using different software programs, different ways to check in. Maybe they're all just using Gantt charts in one department and in another department, uh, they're all using uh, some software program. 
like uh, Slack, some of these new software programs like Monday uh, for project management. So keep that in mind because things are moving so quickly, you're gonna wanna ask questions about their project management approach. You wanna find out about their project management approach, especially since the pandemic through your informational interviews before you interview with that company. Uh, take a look at the AI, the artificial intelligence, data analytics, what software programs are they using? Uh, a lot of cloud, you know, everything's very cloud-based. We're seeing new positions in R&D, newer positions like a tech, uh, technology development officers or associate, uh, informatics specialist, cloud, uh, cloud informatics specialist, because there's this integration of uh, all these inflows of data that are occurring uh, from external organizations with the company, right? They might be partnering with CROs. They're producing a lot of data themselves. It's going into the cloud. Who's managing all of this data? Who's managing all of these cloud-based systems? There are positions specifically for that, but it's all embedded in project management, right? The, the project managers have had to embrace uh, the, these cloud-based systems, informatics, and as a PhD, that's what makes you so valuable for these project management roles in industry right now. Emphasis on emotional intelligence. Now you can read a lot of peer-reviewed journal articles, right? And especially in, in neuroscience and others that'll argue EQ does not exist, it's IQ, but it's the language of industry, okay? It's a buzz word, a buzz theme, emotional intelligence. So just know how to talk about that. You might get asked about it. A lot of hiring managers and uh, recruiters really believe in it. A closer connection between projects and strategy. I like this because traditionally project management is the how things get done, the processes. Almost it's more of the culture of, of how things get done. Whereas the strategy, it's the what, like we talked about. We're seeing these two merge much more. Project managers are having to understand strategy, maybe even create the strategies or decide on the strategies much more. That's a trend to watch out for. So make sure you can talk about both the what and the how, the strategy, and then as well as the project management, the processes, the culture. And then finally, project management, change management. Change management used to be, well, like risk management, something very specialized. Change management's newer. Risk management goes back to, to finance. But, right, but now, currently, with what we experienced in 2020, risk management, change management, project management, you have to understand all three of these things. Okay, so project management, this is the simplest way to think about it. It's the non-people side of getting a project done, whereas change management is the people side of getting a project done. Who are the people you need to get involved? Who are the key quote-unquote stakeholders that you need to get on board, board with the project first so it will run smoothly? And then looking at the risks, the, the potential pitfalls, that's a phrase we use a lot in academia. What are the pitfalls? That's the risk management side of it. Understanding this, being able to speak about it, even just knowing that distinction will make you a much more valuable job candidate. So I've talked a lot about informational interviews. In my cheeky stack here, there is a great article uh, that I wanna discuss uh, called, How Do I Ask for an Informational Interview Without Sounding Awkward by Johnny Taylor. I get this question a lot from PhDs. I understand informational interviews, I understand networking, but I'm not comfortable doing it. I can tell you, I've heard a lot of PhDs have, have an uh, intense reaction to us teaching the importance of networking, of informational interviews. Uh, I think every person that's heard us talk about this has immediately hated the idea, uh, even hated me at first, like this person doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, this organization, oh, they just want you to reach out to people. Uh, that's not, you know, where's the strategy there? We, we will think of all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't reach out to others. We'll say, well, it's, you know, we're pushing ourselves on other people. Uh, or this company that's telling me to do this, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Or they just want to tell me to do this because they, they want me into one of their programs. That's what we hear a lot. No, no, we're telling you this because this is how you get hired into PhD level positions in industry. You can't do that in a vacuum. You can't do that with talk, without talking to other people. Again, hiring managers, recruiters, think about it from their point of view. If they can't even be around you, if you won't even talk to them or reach out to people working at their company, 
to have a conversation, how awkward are you going to be once they hire you? Nobody wants to hire the awkward PhD that's going to make everybody else feel awkward and disrupt their culture, as we just discussed. You need to understand that it's on you to reach out and to make the other person feel as comfortable as possible and swallow that discomfort in yourself. Do it over and over again until that discomfort goes away, right? It won't, it'll never go away completely, but it will get easier and easier. So that discomfort, it's valid, okay? Uh, it being difficult to reach out to people, it's valid, but there's a process. Processes, right? The how can make things easier. Instead of just cold contacting people on LinkedIn or otherwise, find somebody that you have in common with the person. I mean, for, go back even further, right? Reverse engineer this. Connect with more people on LinkedIn so you have more shared connections and use those connections to get introductions to other people. Add value to those people first by when you reach out, including a message. Don't just press the blue connect button over and over again. And then learn about the company first. Follow the right process uh, in terms of professional intimacy. A lot of PhDs have a hard time with this. A lot of PhDs, right, we, we entertain very difficult questions in our domain, whether you are a neuroscientist or any kind of life scientist or a physical scientist in physics, chemistry, math, economics, right? If you're an interdisciplinary PhD, social sciences, humanities, whatever it is, you're entertaining very deep questions. Most people do not do that. Most people don't even like to read, okay? It's important to keep this in mind. They don't like to entertain the really difficult, intense, deep why questions, the mechanism, how things work. Okay, this is not in their everyday vocabulary. So if you reach out to somebody and you're too intense, you dive down into the tough questions right away. You ask somebody right away, well, what are the toughest, what are the biggest challenges at the company you're working for? Or, hey, I just want to ask you some questions about the company you're working for, right? That's too open-ended. That's not even a good way to approach it. No, instead, relax, okay? Start with the first level of professional intimacy. So many PhDs have a hard time with this. They think, oh, it sounds like a game. That's not a game. It's, it's human interaction. You can't dive too deep, too fast in terms of professional intimacy. There's levels, okay? There's layers. Asking, you know, following up with somebody, telling them happy holidays, congratulations on the new promotion, Reading something on their LinkedIn profile, which is public, and they put on there because they're hoping somebody reads it. They're proud of it. They're, they're saying, please, somebody notice what I've accomplished. They're putting, they're not, you know, typing those words on their LinkedIn profile for no reason. So compliment them on an accomplishment. Add value in that way. It's simple. Keep it light. That's that first level of professional intimacy. And then if you are able, right, you get an introduction, you're able to ask a few questions. Make it time and topic dependent. I'd love to ask you two quick questions. Won't take more than three or four minutes on how you got into your role at XYZ and what you enjoy about it. Those are non-threatening questions. You're not saying, you know, how long have you been here? When do you think you're going to get a promotion? What are your biggest challenges? What's your work-life balance? No, no, you don't ask any of those. That's too deep, right? You go to that second layer instead, which is how'd you get hired here? What do you enjoy the most about it? Then you can start going into that third layer. Well, what are your biggest challenges? You know, what does the career trajectory look like? Start talking about the, the landscape, the future. And if you do this right, it's very easy to ask someone to pass along your resume to the hiring manager, or, or at least to ask if they can introduce you to anybody else that you can uh, talk to more about the company. All right, let's go back to the stack, the nine steps of people you need in your success circle. I told you on a previous radio show, I really like these identity-based articles. They just help you think about things in a new way. There's nothing extraordinary here. You know, the co-striver, the super connector, the champion, the re-energizer, the mentor, the sponsor. Now, that's why I wanted to call out this article, the sponsor. You need a leader right, who's going to advocate for your career advancement, uh, both before you get hired at a company and after you get hired, right? Having a sponsor, this is not a mentor. This is somebody who's going to be at meetings you're not going to be at once you're hired and who will speak well of you. Think about that. You can get one of these people ahead of time, somebody who will speak well about you on the hiring committee. How? 
by setting up those informational interviews, by paying close attention to who during the process, when you're doing video interviews, phone screens, et cetera, you connect well with. That's the person that's going to end up being your sponsor. Okay. Uh, they talk about, you know, a uh, com community person, people that will help you have more diverse perspectives. That is very important, as is an accountability partner. Not everybody sees the world the way that you do. Find people who see the world differently so you're not missing something when it comes to your job search. Find people to hold you accountable in your job search. People who are more disciplined than you. If you're the most disciplined person that you know, you need to get some new friends, some new accountability partners. Okay, let's move on in, into the stack here. Recruiters, scan your resume in five seconds. This is a great article by Ryan Luke. Very simple, okay? Uh, your name, your current title, your current company. So they did an analysis. What do these recruiters actually see after five seconds on your resume? We talk a lot about this. Uh, the best way to, to get some data here is to give your resume to somebody else, time them for five seconds, Take your resume back, have them write down what they can remember. Odds are your name, some titles, right? Whatever you had in bold on your resume, some of the numbers, the numerical values. I'm really disappointed this article didn't say numerical values. All of these eye tracking studies that are available come back to this over and over again. Our eyes as humans, they stop on numerical values. Okay, so it says here, current position start and end dates, previous title and company, previous position start and end dates. Now, the starting and ending dates, you're, you're a PhD. If you're coming out of academia, you have to use this information to your advantage. If you have no industry experience, if you're a quote-unquote fresher, you need to use a functional resume format so that instead of putting the, your academic job title in bold, you put the skill that the employer, the hiring manager is looking for in bold. And then underneath it, this is all under your work experience, by the way, underneath it, you say gained as a graduate research assistant at XYZ University. So let's say they're looking for the project management as a key skill. You say project management experience in bold as if it's the job title. And then underneath it gained as a postdoctoral fellow at XYZ University. That's the takeaway here. You have to do, if you have no industry experience, there's no other way to get around it. And you will be weeded out by applicant tracking system software, by recruiters and hiring managers, if you do not try that functional resume format. There's lots of other resumes you can use in your, in your toolkit, but try that one if you have no industry experience. And I, I bet you will get some callbacks. Okay, back to the stack. Five key criteria of an excellent resume. Number five, very popular. Uh, this week. Stuart Gentle, right? So professional summary. Yes. Finally, we've been years ahead of this, right? Talking about the importance of a, of a professional summary, a visual center. Finally, we're seeing the, the general uh, recruiter, hiring manager population, or the people writing the articles for these people uh, catching up. Must start with the three biggest career highlights. This says one or two sentences. Forget that. Three bullet points. Start each bullet point with a transferable skill and with that quantified result. Remember, people's eyes stop on numerical values. No other surprises here. Work experience, education, specific and pertinent skills, of course, right? Every bullet point should start with a transferable skill and with a quantified result. And your technical expertise sandwiches them together, right? So uh, you could say uh, project management and experience, ma experience managing different personality types um, in uh, a laboratory environment resulting in three publications, including a nature publication. Just as an example, and if you're thinking, I don't have any results, publications, conferences, methodologies, right? These are systems and business are really important. Processes, that's the key to culture. We've been talking about that. It's the key to project management too. You have these skills. How businesses use applicant tracking systems. So if you, you don't have a lot of experience or a, a strong understanding, check out this article, How Businesses Use Applicant Tracking Systems by Sean Peake. This is brand new information. Uh, it's a great review, right, uh, of what applicant tracking systems are. And a lot of what I like to bring your attention to are the articles, the things that employers are reading so you understand what they're looking for and you can be the right fit for what they're looking for here. So companies are, companies are sold, right, by LinkedIn or others on 
different types of applicant tracking system software. It's really just a, a software as a service, S-A-A-S-S, right? And they all suck. <laughs> they really do. They can't find good talent. How do I know this? Because I'm a PhD, you're a PhD. Uh, unless you play the game, the keyword game, unless you restructure your resume and the ways that we train PhDs on, employers aren't going to find you. Okay. If you upload your resume talking about your academic experience uh, with your academic job titles, ATS is going to weed you out. You're one of the most driven, intelligent people available to an organization as a PhD. You are. McKinsey and company has come out and said there is a massive deficit of job candidates in the job market who can do research and analysis. That is PhDs. You know, combine that with innovation, information processing, work ethic. Come on. All right. You're highly valuable, but all of these AI software systems really, really uh, are not good at finding you. And it talks about this in the article. It talks about human, they call it human error. Okay. You know, it says, oh, if it's ease of use, analytics reporting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The human error is, is the problem because a lot of hiring managers, recruiters, they, they don't have the technical expertise that you do. Um, they don't have a PhD. So how do they find somebody with a PhD if they can't speak the PhD language? They can't. That's why we put it on you. It's up to you to learn about employers to speak their language so you can be found. All right. This is very, very important to understand. 15X, let's talk about some words to use. 15 excellent words to describe yourself in a job interview. This is an article that came out by Wendy Wiener. And it says uh, it has a lot of the transferable skills we've been talking about. In fact, I recently published an article in Forbes this week, which is on my list here. Uh, I have to share it, of course. Uh, a lot of these words are on both of the lists. So adaptable, versatile, resilient, reliable. Those four words right there, uh, I think those are uh, impeccable words you should all be using on your resume and LinkedIn profile right now. Since the pandemic, workforce decentralization, all the changes we've talked about just in this show alone require increased flexibility. Another word for that is adaptability, versatility, resilience, obviously, reliability. Some other ones on the list, proactive, observant, two great words uh, to describe any PhD, disciplined. Now, we, we hear and we've talked a lot about empathy, right, the, the, the qualitative aspect. So don't just talk about if, if you, even if you're a STEM PhD, don't just talk about your understanding of quantitative data but talk about qualitative data, the ability to work with people, having empathy. That's what this next word uh, it, uh, showcases, just through one word, courageous. As in, you will have ethics. You will have the courage to help others. It says a lot in that, in that one word in today's environment. Transparent, accountable, collaborative. Here's another great PhD word, meticulous. Ethical, resourceful, and self-aware. Self-aware. Great word choices. Now, the article that I wrote is called In a Crowded Job Market. Here are the right skills for the future. Uh, talks about three different types of skills, systems-oriented skills, people-oriented, and self-oriented. I, I really like that framework, systems, people, and self-oriented. As a PhD, you want to show that not only do you understand methodologies, and system. This is highly valuable, by the way, and most of you don't talk about it. Highly valuable. Uh, it can be anything from financial acumen, regulatory acumen, documentation, risk management, risk mitigation, production, return on investments. But you also want to show them, show them that you can work with others. Not that you'll get other people to do your work, but you can work with them, especially in virtual environments. Words like virtual training, change management, we discussed even personal development, performance management, project management, task delegation, chain of communication. And then finally, most people, not just PhDs, most people in general never discuss self-oriented skills. Work ethic. Why are you not telling people you have work ethic? You, you can do a, a volume of work that most non-PhDs can, can't even comprehend, right? Ask somebody to do a Google search that doesn't have a PhD. It's embarrassing. The, the volume of work and research and your ability to take action is incredible, okay? Own that. It's very important. Discuss it. Completeness. Here are some words. Completeness. 
autonomy, stress management, technical literacy, and again, work ethic. I want to see you, see you use all of those. We're, uh, we're seeing, and I've talked about this for several shows now, more and more interview questions about how you prioritize work, how you manage time, because employers want to know, hey, if you have to work for home for six months, are you going to get anything done? I can't micromanage you through a computer screen. It's very, very hard. Uh, most companies, right, they will use some sort of software program to track productivity the best that they can, but those are all imperfect. Whenever you go work at a company, by the way, it's not like academia. You'll go work at a company, they're going to plug you into their IT system, right? You'll have to use their VPN, their computers, everything's tracked and controlled. Not like in real time, but they got to be able to go back in, right, in case they're ever sued or something happens. They got to be able to find the data for, you know, some of these companies have tens of thousands of employees. They have to document everything, but it doesn't work and it's not good, right? There's too much uh, humanity that's not ac uh, accounted for in terms of performance, like creative thought. How do you, right? How do you calculate that on some of these soft, these productivity software programs? You can't, you can't. That's why they ask you questions about it. So you have to tell them that you know how to plan, that you are driven internally, that you use a calendar. I'm so amazed. I, well, to be fair, I didn't use a calendar either. Not really, right? Maybe your calendar had a handful of things on it. You have to rely on a calendar. The higher up uh, uh, I see people go in terms of their professions, the executives, their entire life revolves around a calendar, right? You go high enough up, somebody else is managing their calendar and with that calendar telling them where to be and the person doesn't even know where they're supposed to be their calendar is their life. You have to use a calendar. Forget all these other project management tools, to-do lists, everything. It's got to be in a calendar. They will ask you about this. It's a, it's, a com it's a common point of differentiation. The job candidate who understands that they have to put everything that, are, that they're doing in a calendar to be productive and the job candidate who doesn't use a calendar or doesn't really know how to speak calendar doesn't know common questions that will come up about your calendar. Like, how do you schedule your breaks? This is from uh, Lovepreet Dilwal, Six Realistic Time Management Tips for Working Remotely. I wanted to call this out. I have struggled to do this because I want to schedule every meeting, every uh, event, everything that I'm spending my time on in my calendar back to back to back. I want no gaps. I think this is very common for PhDs, just like we go into a document and we reduce the sizes of the margins, right? So we can fit more text on there. The rest of the population, of course, increases the margins. On your calendar, you have to schedule your breaks. You're still human, right? So forget using whatever these buzzword techniques are, these software apps. I mean, if they work for you, great. The most important thing you can do is schedule your time in a calendar schedule breaks. Even if it's 15 minutes in between meetings, this will get you a A plus glowing review from any employer if you tell them that you do this in your calendar. You schedule 10, 15 minute breaks in between meetings just in case the meeting goes over because you want to be punctual and on time. Uh, you want to proactively manage the calendar daily. It's amazing once you do this, how you'll need to structure your day to make sure that you're setting your calendar before the next day starts. The beginning of every month, you should be going through your calendar for that month. The beginning of every week, you go through your entire calendar for that week. And then the beginning of every day, you adjust your calendar for the next day because you have to think about planning versus execution. What they want to know is that you know how to plan ahead, you know how to prioritize, but when the executing starts, you can execute. And of course, you'll get questions like, okay, you've planned, you've prioritized, you start executing, your manager comes to you and gives you a new set of priorities. What do you do? Well, you communicate, first of all, what your current priorities are. You confirm that they want you to change those priorities. And then you adjust your schedule in your calendar and begin executing uh, once again. So very important for you to understand that. Let's go back to the stack here. There's an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education by uh, Leonard Casuto, will COVID finally force us to fix our broken doctoral advising? I like this article, but a, a, like a lot of articles that are written in this kind of academic format, you know, there's no key takeaways. It's written more in long form. Uh, 
Uh, it's a lot of uh, just discussing, right? There's no actual solutions. It just says, here's the problem. Here's some things that we could do. Here's what might happen on both sides. You won't take away a lot from the article. I still recommend reading it, but I do like it because it talks about, look, we are in a different time now. Tenure positions are gone. Uh, those long-term obligations are not coming back. Academia can't afford to do it. What does this mean? It means that professors, PIs need to adapt, but they won't until they're pressured to, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. Until you know, academia, the university, the department says, you have to graduate a PhD in three years, four years, whatever else it is, right? We've looked at different models around the world. Until that's happened, the, they won't graduate them in that timeline. Uh, until they are required to have training on how to get a job outside of academia, they will not train them on this. They're too concerned about their own careers. They're too stuck justifying their decision to stay in academia. This is a, a moment of reckoning, but this reckoning has been going on for decades, so I don't want to uh, talk about it like there hasn't been uh, a, a broken system for a long time. But it is definitely a moment of reckoning because the, the revenue is not there at a staggering level. Uh, depending on the data you look at, undergraduate enrollment is down up to 20%. That's like a 20% revenue cut for a company, right? Because that, that tuition, the undergraduate tuition is what funds a lot of higher education. It's not just grants. Many of you don't know that. So what needs to occur for PhD students, postdocs to be trained, to be advised on the different types of jobs available, how early you need to actually start mapping out your life after academia, how early you have to map out your transition. So I recommend you, you know, you read articles, we call them the academic blues. Uh, you read articles like this to understand where things are going, but a lot of it's, it's just discussion. We, we want results. We want to see it enforced because until it's enforced, again, until it's a necessity, advisors aren't going to implement it. Most, and by most, I mean, again, looking, uh, depending on the data you look at, well over 95%. Look at your own university, right? They might have a career counselor, but I'm guessing that career counselor has never worked in industry. Uh, think about that. They've only been in academia. They're a lifetime academic. And that is the rarest path for a PhD uh, in terms of a professorship, uh, a long-term, well-paid position in academia. Does that even exist anymore? Something to, to consider. Okay, let's go back to the stack. I want to end with talking about business, business acumen. I want to talk about biotechs, pharmaceuticals, STEM, non-STEM, industry companies. What are they doing? What do you need to understand? I want to help you uh, develop your vocabulary of industry. So what we're seeing, and this is in a, a really, really good article uh, in DICE by Nathan Eddy, biotechnology industry desperately needs technologists and data experts. Hello, I just said that. Uh, they talk about the, the median salary uh, for, for the biotechnology market, and, and often this is bunched into really anything requires you to understand qualitative or quantitative data. So if you're a humanities or interdisciplinary, don't count yourself out because that qualitative data is valuable. Information, whether you're studying qualitative or quantitative data or information, whether you're researching that and analyzing it, it is valuable. And so this applies to you. So with that demand for data, okay, and, and how to write the concerns for how to store it. I talked about this previously, how to process it, the data pipelines, uh, for, for all the, the data flowing into an organization, flowing out of it, uh, the security, right? They need you. Companies need you. You're, you're hearing words, right? This, the word informatics has continued to uh, be used more and more. If you look at the trends on, on Google or other search engines, uh, use that word if you're trying to get into an R&D position at any company, informatics. Uh, understand what biotechnology, pharmaceutical, both STEM and non-STEM companies are looking for in terms of managing information and data. 
this is a strong point for you, no matter what type of PhD that you have. Okay, so understand that the problem is, is there's too much information, too much data, and the systemization of it is crucial. Don't be intimidated anymore, no matter what type of PhD you have. Don't be intimidated by words like machine learning. Okay, this is something that you can do. Modeling, right? We have all, you have to learn about a scientific model, model for whatever type of PhD you have, whatever your discipline is. Uh, you've had to create a model, right? Move from theory to, to practice through experimentation. You can do this. You understand algorithms, right? At a theoretical level, you just have to be able to understand how they're implemented. Be willing to learn programming languages. Don't let that scare you off. Be willing to learn about different cloud-based software platforms, the names of them, uh, so that you can discuss them, right? Uh, so uh, this article drops some company names like uh, Ginkgo, Bioworks, Benchling. Uh, Benchling does great marketing, by the way. Uh, just be willing to learn about this, even if you have a PhD in humanities. It's touching everything now everything. Biopharma Dive, great resource for articles. Five trends in biotech deal making to watch in 2021. Uh, always recommend that you stay in tune of the major merger and acquisition deals. Read about them because it'll help you understand how deals work. We always talk about the importance of salary negotiation. That's really the first deal you're going to make for your first industry job. As you climb the ladder in industry, deal-making becomes a more and more important transferable skill. This article is, uh, is I, I like this article because it talks about how pharma companies are, they're losing in a sense their leverage because they're not the only ones with money anymore. Private equity firms, right, can buy uh, startup biotechs or pharma companies or uh, startup tech or any type of company, right? So there's more competition, which is good. So if you go work for a smaller company, don't forget to think about asking for equity to try to get into a position. I've seen a lot of PhDs get into a CSO position at a smaller company and get equity because they're starting that lab from the ground up. Okay. So uh, keep in mind that there are uh, private equity firms. There's just a lot more money in general investing. One of our programs, PhD CEO, talks a lot about this. Uh, we're seeing huge amounts of capital being raised uh, by, by STEM companies, biotechs, again, pharma tech, uh, non-STEM as well. Uh, and many of them have PhDs on their teams. They're hiring PhDs into uh, their business development teams uh, for this reason which is why we just launched a new advanced program called the Business Development Federation. It's that popular for PhDs now. Uh, I want to mention the word, I think I brought this up before, neuroscience. I was going through all of the members of a couple of our advanced groups, and I was surprised to see how many PhDs have a neuroscience background now. It's incredibly popular. You know, it's been, it's uh, the, the, the mind neuroscience, the brain, it's been called the final frontier, right, ad nauseum. Uh, but it's, there's a lot of uh, careers. And you remember, you don't have to have a neuroscience background. If you are a PhD, especially if you're in the life sciences, you can learn about neuroscience. You can go work at a company, even if you, you have a, a chemistry degree, a social sciences degree, everything. We're seeing more and more and more in, in pharma, STEM, life, even hospitality companies, they're looking at behavior, the mind. Uh, of course, uh, when it comes to curing uh, diseases, we're seeing a lot of arrows point towards neuroscience as well. Okay, at the back of the stack, the back of the cheeky stack, stack I just wanna make sure that all of you understand how quarters work. Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4, you hear a lot about this in industry, correct? Right, so uh, in most cases, most companies, most countries, it's January through March is Q1, April, May, and June, Q2, July through September, Q3, and October through December, Q4. You're probably saying, yeah, thanks for telling me how the year is chopped up into quarters. Hey, some of you may have, you haven't thought about it, right? You, we don't chop things up like that in terms of our calendars in academia. We have first 
semester, you know, uh, spring semester and fall semester. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to learn about quarterly earnings reports, okay? These are important for publicly traded companies and for their investors, which can just be public shareholders, right? If you go buy some stock of Apple, right? They release these reports and they affect the value of the company stock. They have to, because they're publicly traded, they're taking money from the public. They have to report what their earnings were, their revenue, their profits. And from that, you can be like, okay, this company's in trouble. I'm selling my stock. They're, they're, the value of their stock decreases because of that. If they have a good quarter, right, their stock value may increase. Now, I'm going to give you some inside information here. Ask yourself this. I always want PhDs to know more about money. I want you all to be paid extremely well for what you do, and I want you to understand what to do with your money because most of us, right, we didn't have some for any for so long that we don't even know what to do with it. Ask yourself this. Why do companies, right, often demand money from you every month but then they give their dividends to their stockholders, for examples, uh, example, every quarter. Why does that happen? Like if you take a loan from a bank, if you take a loan from a bank, they're going to make you pay on that loan every month. But if that bank pays dividends for their stocks, for example, they pay it out every quarter. The difference between that monthly cash flow and that quarterly payout makes banks, companies, hundreds of millions of dollars. Something to think about. Make sure that you're learning as much as you can. Hopefully this radio show taught you at least one new thing, if not many. Remember your value as a PhD. If you're listening to this on Monday, January 18th, go check out cheekyscientist.com for our big job search jumpstart event. Get access to all of our programs together in one single membership. Details are easy to find at cheekyscientist.com. Ha ha, wait!